This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. From It Is Written, I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Pastor Eric Flickinger. Eric, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. Today, we begin with a question from Connor, who asks, how do I know if I'm ready for the second coming of Jesus? Connor, that's a great question. I'm going to give you a great answer. If it comes from the Bible, it's great. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 10, I shall read to you verses 9 and 10, Romans 10, 9 and 10. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Biblical, blessed assurance. Let me read Romans 10, starting in verse 9. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, Connor, there's more to this than that, but it's not untrue. It's very true to say, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've yielded your life to Him, you can know you have the gift of salvation, and therefore know that you are ready to meet Jesus when He comes again. But Eric, there's more. There is, and we find uh, an addition to that answer over in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 and verse number 12. And this verse describes those who are ready for Jesus at His return. It says in Revelation 14 verse 12, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So these individuals love Jesus. They've surrendered their hearts to Jesus, just as we talked about. But not only that, it's the natural outflowing of that love, of that acceptance of salvation, the gift of salvation that Jesus has given them, that their lives are changed. And it says here that they keep the commandments of God. In other words, they've laid their selves, their wills on the line. They've asked Jesus to come into their heart and begin to make their choices for them, and they've chosen to follow Him. God wants you to know that you have the gift of salvation, but a fair question to ask is, what does that look like? And it looks like what Eric just read. People who love God and have surrendered keep His commandments. Now, in Titus chapter 2, Paul wrote to Titus about the second coming, which he refers to as the blessed hope in verse 13. He says, starting in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that's everyone, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope, the second coming of Jesus. So, accept Christ, salvation is yours, you're ready. But what does that really look like? Because some have got the idea that accepting Jesus is something that only happens in word. But when He really comes into your life, what happens? He starts to live His life in you. Your life changes. You'll keep the commandments of God because that's where Jesus leads you. And you'll live soberly and righteously and deny ungodly and ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now, if you've accepted Jesus, that's what you have to do. And that's what God wants. Believe now that you are ready for eternity. 
Great question, Connor. Thanks for sending it in. Got another question there. This one comes from Katrina. And Katrina asks the question, does God forgive abortions? The Bible says thou shalt not kill. So will God forgive abortions? Well, the Bible does say thou shalt not kill. In fact, a better translation of that is thou shalt do no murder, that you shouldn't commit murder. Katrina, I think you're onto something here. Abortion is wrong. Now, somebody might say, what about in the, in the case of the safety or health of the mother? Okay, we can understand that. But elective abortions, abortions functioning as contraception, abortions functioning as, oh, I guess I really shouldn't have done that. Um, no, that's wrong, and you're right about that. But here's what the Bible says, and you must know this. This is 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read about murderers in the Bible who were forgiven by God, drunks who were forgiven by God, um, disobedient children who were forgiven by God. Uh, the Bible is replete with examples of people who did things they should not have done, but God was able to forgive because God forgives. He delights in forgiving. So if you've identified something that you've done wrong that you know falls outside the boundaries of the will of God, okay, what you do is you go to God and talk about that. You'll tell God how sorry you are. You'll ask God to forgive you, and God will forgive you. Believe that he forgives. Thanks for your question. Great. Our next question comes from Ben, and Ben wants to know. He says, I believe I don't deserve to go to heaven or hell, and I just heard you on the radio about hell. Hold on a minute. It's true, Ben, that you don't deserve to go to heaven. It is not true that you don't deserve to go to hell. You do. More on that in just a moment. Ben continues with his question. He says, I didn't create sin, so I shouldn't have to suffer from it. I have a hard time believing somebody is going to burn forever. All right, now that's a really good point. I'll let you pick up on that after I say this. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's a truth. We sinned against God. We told God, no thanks. Sin separated between us and God. And while you didn't ask to be found in a sinful world, those were your sins. And the just reward or deserts for those sins are indeed just. The lost deserve to be lost. There's no way around it. Otherwise, we could make all kinds of excuses for where we are, and Jesus, therefore, would not need to have died on the cross. He died for our sins. So, do you deserve to go to hell? Ben, here's the truth. Yes, you do. And so do I, and so does Eric, and so does everybody. Do you deserve to go to heaven? You are right about this. No, you don't. So how can you go to heaven? Because Jesus died for you. And when you accept him by faith, you are credited for possessing, in a very real term or sense, his righteousness. You don't deserve it. Only Jesus deserves heaven. But Jesus says, give them what I deserve. Give me what they deserve. Grace is amazing. We deserve to be lost. We don't deserve to be saved. God gives us the gift of salvation anyway. Now, back to the second part of this question. Ben made the observation here. He says, I have a hard time believing that somebody is going to burn forever. It's good that he has a hard time believing that because that's actually what the Bible teaches. Amen. Uh, we'll take a look at a few different verses here. The first one we're going to look at is in the book of Malachi, just at the tail end of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1, 
It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. And then in verse number three, he says, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So here we see pretty plainly that God says that the wicked are going to be burnt up, that they're going to be turned into ashes. Now, this is very different from what you hear coming from the pulpits of many Christian churches, which say that the wicked are just going to to writhe in agony throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Yeah, you can imagine that, right? God purposely bringing about circumstances to make people suffer in indescribable agony forever, which, if you don't already know, is a very long time. Would God do that? No, in fact, the Bible is so explicit that God would not do this. In fact, Jude, little Jude, right before Revelation, verse seven says that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what will happen to people who uh, find themselves in hellfire. Second Peter two and verse six says specifically, Sodom and Gomorrah were turned to ashes. This is what the Bible says straight up. I've got to say that again. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says, that's the example. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says, ashes. That's consistent with what Malachi wrote some years before. And if there's anybody who deserves, if we can use that word, deserves to burn forever, it would be the devil himself. Amen. And yet when we take a look at Ezekiel chapter 28, we find exactly what's going to happen to him. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 18, it says, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, God says, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So even the devil himself is going to be devoured. He is going to be turned into ashes. And if that's going to happen to him, then we can expect that that's what's going to happen to his followers as well. That's still pretty severe. I mean, that's, that's a very final fate. But God is not going to burn anybody in hell forever and ever. And that, friend, is really, really good news. All right, Eric, one more question, and that is this, and this comes from Tony. I just saw your program about Mongolia, where you stated only 2.5% of the Mongolian population is Christian. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that make me wonder why Jesus didn't take the time to travel the world and enlighten every culture, thereby uniting the world in a common understanding of who he was. If only Jesus had got out more. (laughs) (laughs) and told people, more people, about himself. So why did Jesus not take it upon himself to travel all around the world and show himself to be the Messiah? Well, he spent three and a half years in Galilee in active ministry, and we see the results numerically of his ministry of spending all that time right there in the presence of those same people. Not a whole lot of people chose to follow him there. No, no, in spite of the fact that those people had some thousands of years of religious history that all pointed to the coming of the Messiah. They had a great introduction to him, and even with that, the vast majority, by far the vast majority, rejected him. So what if he had traveled the world? Well, he would have needed a very strong donkey to begin yeah, with. for sure. Um, it would have taken him a long, long time to get to places like North America or Eastern Europe or places like that. And if he had been there and gotten there, how effective would he have been? Probably just about as effective as he was uh, there in the area around Galilee. My thinking is that God more than likely chose the most effective thing to do, I think, being as God as God and knew what would work out best. And you see what happened next is 
Jesus came and lived. This was recorded in scripture and it then devolved on us to go to earth's remotest bounds and show the goodness of God in particular in the lives that we live. We think here at Line Upon Line that God got it right. Thanks for the question, I really do appreciate it. And I want to tell you how you can get your questions to us. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. Or if you'd like to buy a stamp, or you need to, write to us at Line Upon Line. It is written P.O. Box 6, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37401. We'll do our best to give you a Bible answer for your Bible question. With Eric Flickinger, I am John Bradshaw. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. With Eric Flickinger, I am John Bradshaw. At Line Upon Line, we take the opportunity to ask your Bible questions, questions that have been submitted to us at It Is Written. We appreciate you giving us your questions, and our prayer is that the answers we share with you will lead you into the Bible and closer to Jesus himself. Now, here's a question for you from Alan. Why is there no example in the Word of a person praying to or talking to the third person of the Godhead. All right, Eric, why do we not find that in the Word of God? Well, when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him how to pray, he gave them a very plain example. 
You can find that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9. We often refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. And he begins that prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, which is a fantastic way to begin a prayer, especially since it comes directly from Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't believe that means there's an absolute prohibition on talking to Jesus or even talking to the Holy Spirit, but we don't find that in the Bible. Uh, and the model is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And then the Spirit of God comes to us often in answer to our prayer, bringing to us the personal presence of Jesus. So the reason we don't see that is because it's not the biblical model and for very good reason. Next question comes from Walter. How was it that Cain got married? It's a good question. Mm, a lot now, of people. Warning. Don't try this at home. Take it from here. <laughs> a lot of people ask the question, where did Cain's wife come from? We know that Cain murdered his brother Abel and he was sent off into a distant country and all of a sudden he shows up having a wife and children. So what happened? Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. You get a lot of weird ideas. Some people think that maybe aliens had something to do with it. Uh, a lot of different things. When you divert from the Bible, you can come to a lot of different conclusions. Yes, you can. Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. Eric, are you saying what I think you're saying? I'm saying what the Bible says. And that right. is that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. So who did Cain marry? He married one of his sisters. Now, you and I might kind of shudder at the thought of that today, and rightly so, but that's all the people that there were back then. It says in chapter 4 and verse 16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So evidently he didn't go millions of miles. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and so on. So things were different then. Today, we don't do this. There are even laws against it. But there was no, there's no other explanation in the Bible. We don't have to be repulsed by this. It wasn't the little girl. He grew up pulling her pigtails and, and so forth. This could have been many years after, the, after he had left home. Uh, he may have barely known the girl. He didn't have a whole lot of options. And even though it appears unthinkable to us, the Bible leaves us with no option than to conclude that what the Bible says is accurate. Mm. Thanks, Walter. Good question. Here's one from Henry. As I was reading the Bible, I came across something I couldn't comprehend, and that's found in Leviticus 16, verses 7 to 10. Who is Azazel? Has it got to do with the woman in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6? Well, I can tell you, uh, Henry, no. Azazel, the, the, the goat, the scapegoat, in Leviticus chapter 16, doesn't have anything to do with the woman in Revelation 12. That woman represents the church down through the ages. On the Day of Atonement, once a year in the Hebrew economy, a goat was sacrificed for sin. Then another goat was taken. The sins of the people were placed onto that goat. It was led into the wilderness where ultimately it would have died. Represents Satan. Wait a moment. Not as a sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sin had been made. But bearing the punishment for sin. 
you know that Satan ultimately will be punished for his sin and for his part in all of the other sin that has been committed down through the ages. That's what God is portraying in Revelation chapter 16, the ultimate punishment of Satan for the sins that he has committed and that he has caused other people to commit. I reiterate, not a sacrifice for sin, not an atoning sacrifice. That was the first goat, the Lord's goat. The second goat was the scapegoat. That's what we're reading about in Leviticus chapter 16. Okay, Eric, next question. We have a question from Sharon, and Sharon wants to know, after death, are we conscious or are we asleep until Jesus returns? Where would you go to answer that question? I'd probably begin by going to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. I think that's where I would probably start out. And in the book of John, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, here's what the Lord says. John 5, beginning in verse number 28. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in the which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So they will come up in a resurrection, but between now and the resurrection, what's going on? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. That's pretty plain. How is that? You know, in the Psalms, it says the dead do not praise the Lord. You've been to funerals, haven't you? And the person conducting the funeral service says, we must be happy because so-and-so is in heaven praising the Lord. Mm -mm. The Bible says specifically the dead don't praise the Lord. So what happens here? We have a picture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of what happens. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 55. Paul is speaking here, and he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, when Paul talks about sleep here, he's referring to death. Jesus talked about that when, uh, when Lazarus uh, died. He said, Lazarus is sleeping. Lazarus is dead. Mm -hmm. And here Paul echoes the very same sentiment. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible. And we, he says, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Writing to the Thessalonians, same writer Paul, he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. In the Bible, that word sleep is used to describe death. Death is a dreamless sleep. It's not a matter of dying and going straight to heaven. Jesus said that he was the resurrection and the life. And if you can get to heaven without a resurrection, then you can get to heaven without Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Uh, Paul went on to write, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Why would there be a resurrection if people go straight from this life to the life to come after dying? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Now we understand people die, they sleep and wait for Jesus to come back, at which time the sleeping saints are woken from their slumber and are taken to be with God forever and death will be no more. 
Good news, isn't it? Excellent. All right, let's see if we can get another question in here. We have a question here from David. David says, thank you for taking the time to answer my question. I was wondering what the Bible is referring to in Revelation 11, verses 3 through 12, when it's talking about the two witnesses. Uh, I think we can get two more questions in. Good question, thank you. Historically, um, historicist Protestant scholars have looked at the two witnesses as simply referencing the Old and New Testaments, not two people talking about a time in Earth's history where the Bible was laid low, where it was ignored, trampled into the dust. Ultimately, these two witnesses come back to life and the Bible came back, as it were, from the dead. The two witnesses would be the Old and the New Testaments. We could talk about this forever. We'll choose not to, but that's the short answer, the Old and New Testaments. Let's have another run at this. Do we have time for one more we, question? We have time, I think, for one more. And this one kind of uh, dovetails with the answer that you just gave regarding historicism. Uh, Eugene wants to know the answer to the question, what are your beliefs regarding preterism? All right. Well, my beliefs aren't that material. Really, what really matters is what does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't mention preterism, but preterism is a school of prophetic interpretation that posits that pretty well all last day Bible prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. So there won't be an antichrist in the last days. There won't be a beast in the last days. Why? Because it's all happened before already and we can kind of rule off under that and turn to a new page. Um, preterism pretty well got its start as a result of the scholarship of a Jesuit named Luis de Alcazar. And this was during the Counter-Reformation. <clears throat> Let us see if we can understand why this came about. You had people like Martin Luther who were pointing to the last day Bible prophecies and saying many of these prophecies find their fulfillment in the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, of course, this left some people feeling rather uncomfortable, feeling like the prophecies really did point to them. And so you had somebody like Alcazar who came along and took those same prophecies and interpreted them in a way that essentially rendered them meaningless. So that down here in Earth's last days when the prophecies would be urging you to look in a certain direction, there are going to be people who say, no, we don't believe that because it has all been fulfilled in the past. Do you really think all of these end-time Bible prophecies have met their fulfillment already? If all of them have met their fulfillment, then that would mean that Jesus had probably come and we are not here anymore. But it seems like we're still here. It seems like things are still going on, so it looks like there's a prophecy or two that has yet to be fulfilled. I think you're right. Preterism, pre-tourism, those things that have happened in the past. Preterism says the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation have all been fulfilled. My view, if you really want to know it, is that that interpretation of the prophecies of the Bible is far from accurate. It, is, it would be more appropriate, it would be more accurate to say that some prophecies have been fulfilled, some are being fulfilled, and some are yet to be fulfilled. Until, of course, that day comes when everything's been fulfilled, and that's the day when Jesus will return. Great questions today. Very good. Appreciate those a lot. Here's what we would like you to do. If you have a Bible question for Line Upon Line, email us, lineuponline, that's one word, at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. The really difficult questions, address them to Eric. The simpler ones, I'm okay with those. Or if you'd like to write, write to us at lineuponline at it is written, P.O. Box 
6, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37401. We'll do our best to give you an answer to your Bible question. Thanks so much for joining us today with Eric Flickinger. I am John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line. God bless you.